The accelerated pace of change in healthcare, including electronic health records and new practice settings, has influenced physicians' approach to patient care. These and other changes, such as MACRA, affect how care quality measures are developed and implemented, the ability of medical specialties, including nephrology, to attract science's best minds, and how physician training is shaped and funded. Addressing how these challenges will affect 148,000 internal medicine specialists is a key role for Dr. Darylin Moyer, the new Executive Vice President and CEO of the American College of Physicians. In this episode of the Kidney News Podcast, ASN's Executive Vice President, Todd Ibrahim, and ASN Public Policy Board Member, Dr. Crystal Gadigbeku, discuss these shared challenges and other opportunities with Dr. Moyer. Dr. Moyer, thank you for joining us for today's podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. So I'd like to just start off by asking you why you decided to make the transition from an academic health center to the largest specialty organization representing physicians. Well, just to tell you a little bit about my background, I'm a first-generation physician, having had uh, some health challenges growing up, like some people whose careers have been galvanized into medicine. My career decision was heavily influenced by my contact with the healthcare environment, and I have gotten to work in many different spectrums as a physician, as an infectious diseases trained subspecialist. I had the opportunity to work both in direct primary care, both inpatient, outpatient, HIV, both primary and subspecialty care, as well as infectious diseases. Along the way, I've had the privilege of working at a couple of different institutions, but uh, came from a large academic health center, Temple University Hospital and Lewis Cass School of Medicine at Temple University, where we got to serve a variety of people that had healthcare challenges as the largest safety net provider in the uh, greater Philadelphia area. We got to really lead in terms of physician being teacher as well for a lot of people from different walks of life. And I've had contact with many different people in the healthcare environment, from our students to our trainees to both our full-time faculty at the institution as well as our community-based faculty and, of course, all of our other members of the healthcare team. And believe that the American College of Physicians, being the largest specialty organization in internal medicine, is also a very large tent spanning the spectrum from frontline primary care providers to sub-subspecialists. And really believe that it would be a fantastic opportunity to utilize that spectrum of experience that I've had and work with our team together to in this very transformative healthcare landscape. So as you look at the current landscape, what are some of your priorities and ACP's priorities for the next couple of years? Well, I think that one of the biggest priority initiatives for the ACP, we have several of them, but one of them is really to experience greater professional satisfaction and fulfillment for our members. And that is really a big tent for which many opportunities exist opportunities as we're educating more and more generations of physicians who have different educational styles, although they all believe that it's very important to bring their best patient care every day. So opportunities to really be at the forefront of expanding approaches for delivering information and important education for our members to do the best they can and really make the best decisions in patient care every day. 
We're also seeing a huge transformation, of course, in healthcare delivery and facilitating that transition in new delivery models is something that's a very high priority for me professionally and, and for the college. The American College of Physicians really, and along with the medical subspecialty societies, plays a critical role in helping to sit at the table and be national leaders in various arenas, such as optimizing performance measurement being the synthesizers for clinical guidelines that are at the fingertips of our members. Um, help to bring more value to healthcare so that we optimize quality and try to keep the cost at a minimum. Um, trying to engage our members as they have become increasingly challenged with administrative complexities that they're facing on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's electronic health records whether it's dealing with administrative processes that various insurers have, all of those in sort of the bigger tent of professional satisfaction are very important. So this is a perfect time to thank Dr. Gedebeku for joining us for today's discussion. And I just wanted to ask her to talk a little bit about what some of these issues are. that You've, you've done a nice job, obviously, of, of framing the challenges that face not only the ACP but also ASN. And I'm just curious, Dr. Gadabuku, from your perspective, where are there possibilities for interaction between ASN and ACP in these areas? Yes. Um, thank you for having me, and it's great to talk with you, Darylin. As Darylin was describing the future and current priorities for ACP, I thought that they're also important for us in nephrology as a subspecialty. I think professional satisfaction and fulfillment and all the opportunities in education are so important, and we're at the cusp of tremendous transformation with healthcare delivery, and I think nephrology stands at the forefront of new models of care and also uh, struggling with performance measurements and as well the quality and cost consciousness, particularly with our end-stage renal disease program. And so it's so exciting to hear her talk about those particular priorities because I think they really come home to us and, and speak to us in nephrology. So I look forward to hearing more and obviously working with ACP in, in this mission. Just to go off subject a little bit, I'm struck that infectious diseases and nephrology and, and geriatric are the three subspecialties within internal medicine that have struggled a bit to be attractive to students and residents. I'm just wondering, Dr. Moyer, of your perspective on some of those challenges. Incredibly challenging. I think there's some statistic that, you know, 56% oh, of geriatric programs did not fill their match and about a third of nephrology programs and infectious diseases programs in the subspecialty match in 2015. And I think we deal in these arenas with very, very complex patients that don't just have one diagnosis or need one procedure. And I think that that is definitely part of the fundamental concern when it comes to geriatrics, nephrology, and infectious diseases. And that there's a lot of cognitive processes that need to happen when dealing with these multiply complex patients. And when I think of the fact that the entire patient population is aging, in fact, there's, I believe, a statistic that the 65 and older age group will grow 46% to over 82 million people by 2030 and they're increasingly getting renal disease and renal failure, and they're increasingly getting challenged with infections. 
that patient population that is the predominance in those specialties is just going to increase in both volume and complexity. Dr. Gadabaku, from your perspective, what do you see as some of the challenges in this arena? You know, we have, as you know, really struggled with keeping interest in the field of nephrology, and I agree with Dr. Moyer in that these are quite complex patients. We don't have some of the exciting procedures of other subspecialties, and maybe even the income is not as attractive as in other subspecialties, and with increasing medical education debt, these become important factors. I also think that students are thinking more about life-work balance than maybe we did in the past and have a better outlook of how we worked. And I think as this evolves, I think we're going to have to come into alignment with some innovative and different ways of doing things. And I feel that I obviously am very excited about the field of nephrology and and really don't understand why every single person doesn't want to do it. But but I understand that these are some of the challenges that these young career-minded people are facing. And along with the uncertainties of a changing environment, and a changing landscape in healthcare, I think it is very, very challenging for us. So we've talked a little bit about the broader changes that are occurring in the healthcare system in the United States, and then more specifically about challenges within some of the specialties in internal medicine related to attracting the next generation. Obviously, there are other specialties, such as oncology, which are oversubscribed, and there's there's more interest than there are positions. I guess I'm curious as to how this relates to potential levers that we can use to influence the decisions people make in terms of care delivery. So, I mean, I want to get to to financing for graduate medical education in a second. But before we do, are there other levers that an organization like ACP or ASN can use to try to both attract the next generation but also leverage some of the changes that are occurring in healthcare? Well, as we talked about, being at the table and also leading the way is very, very important. I'll give you a, a recent example from the college. Our Medical Practice and Quality Committee from the ACP sent a 94-page letter to CMS really commenting on MACRA implementation, understanding that we need to have more room and more ability for subspecialists in this to be measured and to have a say in indices that they're being held to, small practices, uh, concerns about how they're going to get the quality reporting data. And so the college has been able to forward that discussion and really get to impact what happens on a day-to-day practice, frontline way. We saw that Andy Slavitt recently announced the Pick Your Pace, which is, again, is a another movement forward in an ongoing discussion of how we have to get the payment model, not just to count volume and to count procedures, but to be able to also begin to allow the important work that our practitioners are really doing in the extra time they're spending from a cognitive perspective to optimize outcomes from patients to be able to count as we get into the implementation of MACRA. So very important is that you know we leverage the power of our community to say, you know, here's what we can all agree on that we need to get to more meaningful measures. And that's going to look a little bit different because we're not a homogeneous community. So that's one substantive way in which we've been able to do that. 
We're going to get into GME in a little bit, but I think that GME and ACP is very grateful uh, to ASN for having offered very robust comments on a recent graduate medical education paper that was published as a policy position paper recently in the annals. So sort of leveraging that power as a community is vitally important so that we can all move forward together. Because at the end of the day, we want to all get back to, again, the primacy of the patient-physician relationship and delivering the best possible care. Yeah, and on the other hand, um, from the very local level, Darren spoke on the very broad level there what ACP is doing. But on the local level, I think we as nephrologists could stand to be a little bit more out there in terms of exposure and medical education. I have learned over the years that medical students are making decisions about what they want to be and what they want to do at earlier and earlier stages. And so by the time they may get exposure to what a nephrologist does, what a kidney doctor does, they may have already decided on another career path. And so here at Temple, we've been trying to interact with students at very early levels of their training in the first year of medical medical school, maybe even before, and actually involving them in community engagement, outreach, and engagement events, which they are often really excited to participate in, to actually expose them to what a nephrologist does and see beyond what actually takes place in the hospital, but actually what we do outside in terms of seeing transplant patients and end-stage renal disease patients, home patients. Um, and it's really been exciting to watch these students learn and be exposed to this. And I think we as a community, as a nephrology community, need to do much more of that because I think with the major campaigns and other subspecialty groups and other career paths in the health professions, they learn very early either from their own personal exposure or just from TV or, or what, what have you, they learn very early what some other doctors do. And I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of getting more exposure at earlier stages. So I'm struck that there's kind of a paradox that you're both kind of talking around. I'm just going to see if I can frame it and see if you agree with me, which is on the one hand, if you look at all the recent legislation, if, if it's from MIPA, the Medicare Improvements for Patients and Providers Act, which really influenced the payment for the end-stage renal disease program under Medicare, to the Affordable Care Act and the transformations that that put in place for the U.S. health system or MACRA. And one thing we'll do is we'll post links to both the ACP response to MACRA proposed rule and, and ASN. Um, so that the people listening to the podcast, if they want to look at you know, some of the specifics and read the 94 pages and, and, and get the sense. But the, all of that legislation and all of the movement is towards sort of a system where larger integrated delivery systems or operations will be positioned in a better place than smaller physician-run organizations. And if that's the case, on the one hand, on the other hand, at an institutional level, a lot of our education seems to be becoming more and more individualized. And I mean, do I, I'm just wondering how we balance that, if that seems like a reasonable summary of where we're headed from a policy perspective. Actually, the Medical Practice and Quality Committee for the college is actually composed of practicing physicians who are on the front line of care. And they were very specific in making sure to include the entire spectrum of practitioners because we all know that when you've seen one physician's practice, you've seen one physician's practice. And so that there was something in there for everyone, including safe harbors for virtual reporting for smaller practices, 
allowing people to, you know, have a little bit more startup time and to maybe not have to uh, report a complete set of data initially. Uh, because remember, this implementation is starting, the data collection is starting in 2017, um, as well as being more flexible about performance measurement and looking at what we need to do for subspecialists as well. So I think that the ACP is trying to take a look at all of our stakeholders, our entire large heterogeneous community, and find something for everyone because we recognize the variety in practices that physicians are embodied. Um, is there consolidation happening in the healthcare enterprise? You're absolutely right, Todd. There are some projections out there that in the next five to ten years, we may be left with a couple of hundred large healthcare systems. So there's definitely consolidation happening in healthcare, but we need to continue to bring it back to taking care of the patient in front of you. And I think that picking up on something Crystal had said about not just paying for inpatient and services delivered there, being much more flexible because we're seeing more and more models of care more ambulatory-based models of care, and that you don't have to just see a patient sitting in a hospital bed. There's a lot of great things, people that are so passionate about taking care of patients that are working in ambulatory and integrated settings. So we need to make sure that we expose the students of medicine a lot earlier to that, and that you know, the graduate medical education, as you know, is really based out of sponsoring institutions, and so the balance is tilted more towards inpatient. But we need to recognize that increasingly we're seeing these new models of care being on the forefront for our patients and for our practitioners. Yeah, just to emphasize, there is a need to strike the right balance. I think that, you know, we all want to have the best quality care for ourselves and for our patients, and performance measures are going to be important to develop those metrics for those. And we, we need to think about the national scope of the workforce and being able to serve people but at the same time, there's the doctor-patient relationship, and that success of taking care of a patient really depends upon a successful relationship with that patient. And so I think it is going to be interesting and challenging as things evolve and we become more and more integrated that we still have to preserve and protect what is so valuable, which actually gives us professional satisfaction and what actually empowers the patient. And so I think we have to step carefully and uh, really take it step by step on creating those best models. So as we shift to federal support for graduate medical education, as Dr. Moyer mentioned, the American College of Physicians and the Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine recently published an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine with a position statement and recommendations on this important issue. And it links well to our conversation about fewer sort of integrated delivery systems the fact that in all likelihood there will be a higher percentage of physicians who are employed by either these systems or other entities and the fact that so much care is delivered outside the hospital setting and increasingly medical education, particularly graduate medical education, will take place in, in ambulatory settings and other sort of non-traditional GME settings. So as I read the position statement, again, we will post it on the website with the podcast, um, having all payers, not just the Medicare program, contribute to graduate medical education, combining the two current payment schemes, the direct med graduate medical education payment and the indirect medical education adjustment, and 
shifting the funding from sort of traditional teaching hospital focus to more where the education is taking place seem to be three of the key tenants. I'm just wondering as we move forward, um, Dr. Moyer, if that's a reasonable summary in terms of trying to link these two discussions. Absolutely, and I think in the background of this is the fact that what are the workforce needs? and that people have expanded positions at their institutions, and that's all well and good. We've got, I think, 125,000 positions now in GME at 10,000 different residencies and fellowships, but we do have a high concentration at academic health centers. But we really need to get some really good data. There's not really been a comprehensive workforce study that has been really funded to inform this. So in the background, the societal commitment for GME really needs to be there because we all benefit, all of society benefit when we've got a healthy population and we can all go to work every day because we are healthy. And you're right that all payer is very, very important and that's one of the major positions in the ACP AIM paper. And that is that lots of people benefit from the graduate medical education of physicians. And that right now, a GME is really paid for predominantly by Medicare, Medicaid. So Medicare, Medicaid, the states, there's some funding from the Veterans Administration, from the Department of Defense, PERSA, and the Children's Hospital Medical Network. But the preponderance of GME is funded by the federal government. And so an all-payer network is very, very important. The other thing that we need to recognize is that GME funding right now is a complex formula of direct GME, indirect GME. The direct GME was actually a base period of 1984-85, and it has rolled in it not just the stipends and the salaries for the trainee, but faculty salaries, administrative costs, institutional overhead. Uh, an indirect GME is calculated, again, with a form of resident-to-bed ratio that is dependent on inpatient volume and case mix index. Uh, funding is only updated for inflation. And so we need to sort of start to look at that and see what's the best model moving forward with that. We also see a fair amount of geographic disparity. The slots are sort of maldistributed. Correlation between training and practice sites, as we all know, is very, very important that there's a preponderance of people to stay and practice where they train. Uh, so figuring out a formula for payment is really makes a lot of sense. And funding innovative, more contemporary models of care is vitally important as a fundamental principle in the paper. So I guess that was a question I had was, what would be the mechanism for funding the potential pilot programs? Well, so, you know, the IOM proposed that we have two separate funds, but what ACP and AIM say in this paper is that we can't fund potential pilot programs out of funds that are already allocated for operational funds for graduate medical education. So we really do need, we need them to, you know, to have another mechanism of funding in the transformational sort of fund and that it shouldn't be dependent on what is the current GME operational fund. And quite frankly, a lot of sponsoring institutions have expanded their residency and their fellowship programs, not because they received additional funding at the federal level or the state level, but because the sponsoring institution is actually footing the bill for 100% of the funding. So this is where the rubber hits the road, and it gets very tough. 
So one thought that I have, and I don't want to get too wonky, but the Medicare GME program is an entitlement program, and support for the National Institutes of Health, for example, or the Department of Veterans Affairs comes through the appropriations process, so those are discretionary programs. But PCORI, of course, is on the entitlement side. So is there a possibility or has there been discussion about approaching PCORI and thinking about some link between medical education and quality of care and perhaps that becomes the mechanism for trying to fund some of these pilot programs. So, Todd, you know, that's a great thought, and AIM does have a task force that is looking not specifically at PCORI, but looking at sort of the big spectrum, the big tent of what potential performance measurement and partnership with other stakeholders would look like in this space, and what are the overarching principles for this? When you think about it, In the current state of performance measurement, GME is already baked into a certain extent because trainees are a big part of the parameters for which we already have measurement in place at institutions that have trainees. So there is a certain element of that right now. What's important is that we get this right and we don't rub Peter to pay Paul and that we move forward in this space in a measured, thoughtful as much as possible, evidence-based mechanism. What I think would be so very helpful is as we develop these integrative care models, once we find the way to do that successfully, it would be so nice to see the innovative training models develop quickly after so that we can enrich, reinforce, and enforce the training the, in the training models what is actually working in the integrative models. Is that something that ACP has thought about? Oh, absolutely. And, again, how things work are very – there's going to be individual circumstances, but to learn what the best practices are is very, very important. And, you know, two of the major positions in the paper are that we take a look at innovative training models and we more broadly disseminate these best practices and this knowledge for having a sense of a learning community. And that these models, many of which are going to be ambulatory-based, we're we're trying not to, you know, admit as many people to the hospital uh, and to make sure that we have them in settings um, where we can provide care that are not necessarily always inpatient-based. And so two of the major positions are to take a look at innovative training and to take a look at ambulatory-based education. And you're right, Crystal, that, you know, learning from each other and informing these models and sharing data and not making it non-proprietary and making sure we move the entire community forward is vitally important. So from your perspective, Dr. Moyer, what role would you see ASN playing in this discussion? Or let let me frame it differently. What advice do you have to ASN in terms of participating in this discussion as it moves forward? I mean, I think that um, what is really happening on the forefront of how you are training your fellows, informing just sort of the allotment of where they're learning. So, you know, what are the different models that they're learning? They're not just learning by doing seeing people uh, in consultative care in the hospital. As Crystal articulated, we've got an increasingly large group of people that are getting different types of dialysis, 
uh, nephrologists are important multidisciplinary team members on various teams. They make fantastic contributions at committee levels and task force levels. So what is the idealized training look like from the nephrology perspective? And, you know, clearly there's rapid transformation happening, but what is the fundamental set of skills that you want your fellows to leave training with that are going to sustain them through a 30, 40 plus year career in nephrology, knowing the specifics of the environment that they might be taking care of patients in. The little details may change, but what are going to be the general principles for which you want people to make sure that they have, in addition to all of that important medical information and clinical synthesis that we know that they're exposed to during fellowship? I just want to emphasize how I think we're all speaking the same language. Our practices may look different. What people do every day may look different, but I think we're all unified as a community that we want to do best by the profession and by patient care every day. Absolutely. I think it's all interesting, exciting, and complicated. Well, Dr. Moyer, Dr. Gadebeku, thank you for joining us for today's discussion. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.